Hey guys, Johnny here. Welcome to episode two of the POP podcast, where today we're going to talk about how God turns intended evil into eventual good. Um, and we're going to still focus on the story of Joseph as we did in episode one, um, because I feel like they intertwine with each other. So basically, just a little recap of what happened in the story of Joseph. Joseph was a boy who had dreams about his family worshiping him. Um, And as soon as he started telling his brothers, his brothers became jealous. Um, They all plotted against him, sold him to slavery, put him in a pit, beat his robe, just stretched everything away from him. Were just completely jealous of him, were angry at him. And yet, through it all, with the hand of God... Joseph, 20 years later, becomes the prime minister of Egypt. And while Joseph had every opportunity to get the score up and, you know, make revenge against them because he was higher than them, he didn't. Instead, he blesses them. So basically, how? How did he flourish in the midst of tragedy? We don't have to speculate. Some 20 years later, the roles were reversed to Joseph as the strong one and the brothers as the weak ones. They came to him in dread, and they feared he would settle the score and throw him in a pit of his own making. But Joseph did not. And in his explanation, we find his inspiration. Genesis 50 verse 20 says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. In God's hands, intended evil becomes eventual good. Joseph tied himself to the pillar of this promise and held on for dear life. Nothing in his story glosses over the presence of evil, quite the contrary. Blood stains, tear stains are everywhere. Joseph's heart was rubbed raw against the rocks of disloyalty and miscarried justice. Yet time and time again, God redeemed the pain. The torn robe became a royal one. The pit became a palace. The broken family grew old together. The very acts intended to destroy God's servant turned out to strengthen him. And this goes back to the saying, pressure makes diamonds. You know, God puts pressure on us. That doesn't mean he's hurting us. What he's doing is, is that he is getting you set for the pain that is about to come. He's getting you ready. But instead of going into a battle unequipped, now you have armor. You have the sword. You have his word. That's really comforting. It just shows that God's hand is there. And so Joseph told his brothers, you meant evil against me. Meant is a Hebrew verb that traces its meaning to weave or plate. You wove evil, he was saying, but God rewove it together for good. God, the master weaver, he stretches the yarn and intertwines the colors, the rag twine with the velvet strings, the pain with the pleasures. Nothing escapes his reach. Every king, despot, weather pattern, and molecule are at his command. He passes the shuttle back and forth across the generations. And as he does, a design emerges. Satan weaves, God reweaves. And so, by giving us stories like Joseph's, God allows us to study his plans. Such disarray, right? Brothers dumping brother. Entitlements, famines, and family feuds scattered about like nails and cement bags on a vacant lot. 
Satan's logic was sinister and simple. Destroy the family of Abraham and thereby destroying his seed, Jesus Christ. All of hell, it seems, set its target on Jacob's boys. But watch the master builder at work, which in this case is God. He cleared debris, stabilized the structure, and bolted trusses until the chaos of Genesis. Wow. God, as the master weaver, master builder, he redeemed the story of Joseph. Can he not redeem your story as well? You'll get through this. You fear you won't. We all do. We fear that the depression will never lift. The yelling will never stop. The pain will never leave. Here in the pit, surrounded by steep walls and angry brothers, we wonder, will this gray sky ever brighten? This load ever lighten? We feel stuck, trapped, locked in, predestined for failure. Will we ever exit this pit? Well, I got an answer for you. Yes. Deliverance is to the Bible. What jazz music is to Mardi Gras, bold, brassy, and everywhere. Out of the lion's den for Daniel, the prison for Peter, the whale's belly for Jonah, Goliath's shadow for David, the storm for the disciples, disease for the leapers, doubt for Thomas, the grave for Lazarus, and the shackles for Paul. God gets us through stuff, through the Red Sea, onto dry ground through the wilderness, through the valley of the shadow of death, and through the deep sea. Through is like one of God's favorite words. Isaiah 43 verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. But I'm going to tell you this, it will not be painless. Have you ever wept your final tear or received your last round of chemotherapy? Not necessarily. Will your unhappy marriage be happy in a heartbeat? Not lucky. Not likely. Are you exempt from any trip to the cemetery? Does God guarantee the, abs the absence of struggle and abundance and strength? Not in this life, but he does pledge to reweave your pain for a higher purpose. And it will not be quick. Joseph was 17 years old when his brothers abandoned him. He was at least 37 when he saw them again. Another couple years passed before he saw his father. Sometimes God takes his own time. 120 years to prepare Noah for the flood. 80 years to prepare Moses for his work. God called young David to be king, but returned him to the sheep pastor. He called Paul to be an apostle. And then isolated him in Arabia for perhaps three years. Jesus was on earth for three decades before he built anything more than a kitchen table. How long will God take with you? He may take his time. His history is redeemed, not in minutes, but in lifetimes. But here's the thing. God will use your mess for good. We see a perfect mess. God sees a perfect chance to train, test, and teach the future prime minister. We see a prison. God sees a kiln. We see a famine. God sees the relocation of his chosen lineage. We call it Egypt. God calls it protective custody where the sons of Jacob can escape barbaric Canaan and multiply abundantly in peace. We see Satan's tricks and ploys. God sees Satan tripped and foiled. Let me be clear. You're a version of Joseph in your generation. You represent a challenge to Satan's plan. You carry something of God within you, something noble and holy, something the world needs, wisdom, kindness, mercy, skill. If, God can neutral if Satan can neutralize you, he can mute your influence. And that's key. The story of Joseph is in the Bible for this reason, to teach you to trust God and to trump evil. 
what Satan intends for evil, God, the master weaver and the master builder, redeems for good. Joseph would be the first to tell you that life in the pit stinks. Yet for all its rottenness, doesn't the pit do this much? It forces you to look upward. Sometimes, or someone from up there must come down here and give you a hand. God did for Joseph. And at the right time, in the right way, he can do the same for you. And sometimes we're going to be alone, but we're not alone. What I mean by that is, is that people may leave you, friends may leave you, family may leave you, but God is there. God is there, always. Here's the thing. In Joseph's case, he discovered what the auction block of Egypt looked like. The bidding began, and for the second time in his young life, he was on the market. The favorite son of Jacob found himself prodded and pricked, examined for fleas, and pushed about like a donkey. Potiphar, an Egyptian officer, bought him. Joseph didn't speak the language or know the culture. The food was strange, the work was grueling, and the odds were against him. So we turn the page and brace for the worst. Another chapter in his story will describe Joseph's consequential plunge into addiction, anger, or despair, right? Wrong. Genesis 39 verse 2 says, The Lord was with Joseph. And he was a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Joseph arrived in Egypt with nothing but the clothes on his back and the call of God on his heart. Yet, by the end of four verses, he was running the house of the man who ran security for Pharaoh. How do we explain this turnaround? Simple. God was with him. So, then we read verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him. This goes back to what we said. Satan can silence your influence and that is dangerous. The love of God is so infectious. People that cannot experience it will see the way you live, will see the way you feel, the way you act. And people will start saying, I want that. What is that? And not only do you help other people, but not only you win souls for Christ, but you're strengthening yourself at the same time. Verse 5 later on says, The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. You see that? You see that? The mere fact that Joseph was in the house of the Egyptian, it was blessed. Because God's presence was all around Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had. Everything Joseph had. Everything. And so... Joseph's story just parted company with the volumes of self-help books and all the secret to success formulas that direct the struggler to an inner power to dig deeper. Joseph's story points elsewhere, look higher. See the difference? We're told to dig deeper when instead we can just look higher. He succeeded because God was present. God was to Joseph what a blanket is to baby. He was all over him. Of course, any chance he'd be the same for you? Here you are in your version of Egypt. It feels foreign. You don't know the language. You never studied the vocabulary of crisis. You feel far from home, all alone, money gone, expectations dashed, friends vanished. Who's left? God is. Even David said, where can I go to get away from your spirit? Where can I run from you? Says Psalm 139 verse 7. He then listed the various places he found in God. The heavens, the grave. 
If I rise with the sun in the east and settle in the west beyond the sea, even there you would guide me. Even there. And so Joseph's account of those verses would have read, where can I go to get away from your spirit? If I go to the bottom of the dry pit, to the top of the slave block, to the home of a foreigner, even there you would guide me. You see how you can just replace that? Now it says the heavens, the grave, if I rise in the sun, in the east, etc., etc. Through your depression, through your anxiety, through the issues, through friends, fake friends, through deception, through it all, through the valleys, through the wilderness, through the storm, God is there. Everywhere. Everywhere. Now, your adaptation of the verse might read, where can I go to get away from your spirit? If I go to the rehab clinic, the ICU, the overseas deployment office, the shelter for battered women, the county jail, even there you would guide me. It doesn't matter who it is. God is always there. You will never go where God is not. Never. God is everywhere. Anywhere. Envision the next few hours of your life. Where will you find yourself? Where where would you find yourself? You know, would you be on the highways? His presence lingers among traffic. In the hospital room, in the executive ward room, the in-law's living room, the funeral home, God will be there. He is not far from each one of us. Acts 17 verse 27. Notice that that says each of us. God does not play favorites. He does not. From the masses on the city avenues to the isolated villagers in valleys and jungles, all people can enjoy god's presence everyone but many don't the plod through life as if there were no god to love them as if their only strength was their own as if the only solution comes from within not from above they live godless lives this is where people can turn to friends people turn to themselves people turn to money and all of those things run out all of those things people turn to addiction people turn to alcoholism and you keep going there just to numb yourself, but for how long can you keep doing that? It's not everlasting. It will all fade, and pain is only going to come more and more and more. This is why God is so important. But there are many Josephs among us, people who sense, see, and hear the presence of God. People who pursue God as Moses did when suddenly tasked with the care to take care of two million ex-slaves. The liberator began to wonder, how am I going to provide for these people? How will we defend ourselves against enemies? How can we survive? And this goes back to what faith is. Believing in the unseen. Believing in the unbelievable. Hoping in the unhopable. So Moses needed supplies, managers, equipment, experience. But when Moses prayed for help, he declared, If your presence does not go with us, do not bring us up from here. Moses preferred to go nowhere with God than anywhere without him. That's real. As did David. The king ended up in in Egypt of his own making. He seduced the wife of a soldier and covered up his sin with murder and deceit. He hid from God for a year, but he could not hide forever. When he finally confessed his immorality, he made only one request of God. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. David did not pray, do not take my crown from me, do not take my kingdom from me, do not take my army from me. David knew what mattered the most, the presence of God, and he begged God for it. Do likewise. Make God's presence your passion. Make it your passion. 
Lay claim to the nearness of God. Lay claim. Never will I leave you nor forsake you. In the Greek, this passage has five negatives. I will not not leave thee, neither will I not, nor forsake thee. And here's the thing. David had such faith in God that he ran to him for everything. David even said, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him. Psalm 42 verse 5. Do not equate the presence of God with a good mood or pleasant temperance. God does not move based on our feelings. God is near whether you're happy or not. Sometimes you have to take your feelings outside and give them a good talking to. Cling to his character. Query from your Bible to the list of the deep qualities of God and press them into your heart. My list reads like this. He's still sovereign. He still knows my name. Angels still respond to his call. The hearts of rulers still yield at his building. The death of Jesus still saves souls. The spirit of God still indwells saints. Heaven is still only heartbeats away. The grave is still temporary housing. God is still faithful. He is not caught off guard. He uses everything for his glory and my ultimate good. He uses tragedy to accomplish his will and his will is right, holy, and perfect. Sorrow may come with the night, but joy comes with the morning. God bears fruit in the midst of affliction. And hey, pray your pain out. Pound the table. March up and down the lawn. It's time for tenacious, honest prayers. If you're angry at God, disappointed with his strategy, ticked off at his choices, let him know it. Let him have it. You got to be honest with God because God knows what your heart is. God knows what your intentions are. Jeremiah did. This ancient prophet pastored Jerusalem during a time of economic collapse and political upheaval, invasion, disaster, exile, hunger, death. Jeremiah saw it all. He so filled his devotions with complaints that his prayer journal is called Lamentations. Lamentations chapter 3 verses 2 through 8 says, God has led me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely he has turned his hand against me time and time again throughout the day. He has aged my flesh and my skin and broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and woe. He has set me in dark places like the dead of long ago. He has hedged me in so that I cannot get out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. Jeremiah infused five chapters with this type of fury. Summarize the bulk of his book with one line. This life is rotten. Why would God place lamentations in the Bible? Might it be to convince you to follow Jeremiah's example? Go ahead and file your grievance. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Psalms 142 verse 2 says, God will not turn away at your anger. Even Jesus offered up prayers with loud cries and tears. It is better to shake a fist at God than to turn your back on him. So much better. How deep in the deep are they who do not cry out of the deep? Words might seem hollow and empty at first. You will mumble your sentences, fumble your thoughts, but do not quit. And don't hide. Lean on God's people. Cancel your escape to the Himalayas. Forget the deserted island. This is no time to be a hermit. Be a barnacle on the boat of God's church. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Matthew 18, verse 20. 
Why would the sick avoid the hospital? The hungry avoid food? The discouraged abandon God's hope distribution? Only at great risk. His people purvey his presence. Moses and the Israelites once battled the Amalekites. The military strategy of Moses was strange. He commissioned Joseph, Joshua, excuse me, to lead the fight in the valley below. Moses ascended the hill to pray, but he did not go alone. He took his two lieutenants, Aaron and Hur, while Joshua led the physical combat, Moses engaged in a spiritual fight. Aaron and Hur stood on either side of their leader to hold up his arms in the battle of prayer. The Israelites prevailed because Moses prayed. Moses prevailed because he had others to pray with him. Others to pray with them. Two or three gathered together in my name. I will be there in the midst. So, hey, he's waiting for you. If Joseph's story is any pre precedent, God can use Egypt to teach you that he is with you. Your family may be gone. Your supporters may have left. Your counselor may be silent, but God has not budged. His promise still stands. I am with you. I will watch over you wherever you go.